Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for listening to our show. You can take your listening further and support our work by becoming a member. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, a members-only newsletter, and members-only blog posts. For the month of February, take 5% off the regular membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code interviews. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code interviews. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. As you know, whenever we find a book we think you ought to read, we like to sit down with the author and talk about it. Chris Whipple is an accomplished author who has written terrific books about White House chiefs of staff called The Gatekeepers, CIA directors called The Spymasters, and most recently he has produced a book called The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. Chris is one of those authors who goes, talks to the people who are doing the job, and tells their stories extremely effectively as somebody who tries to do that periodically in my own books. Chris is one of those authors who leaves me jealous because of how well he does it, uh, and really glad that you could join us today. Welcome. Thanks for the kind words, David. Good to be with you. So, yeah. uh, you know, we're recording this on the day that Joe Biden is about to give the summary version of your book in the form of uh, his State of the Union address, in which I think he's going to go and try and hit a lot of the points of uh, his his view of his accomplishments of the past two years, I thought the book was very good and very fair in terms of enumerating those. What do you think, if Biden is being you know honest about his first two years, he ought to be highlighting in the State of the Union? Yeah, he's going to skip a few parts that are in my book, for sure. <laughs> uh, it, probably Afghanistan for openers. You know, I really see my book and the Biden presidency as a kind of political thriller in three acts. And the first act was, of course, the unbelievably fraught transition, the most dangerous since the Civil War. And I have untold stories about that. Uh, The second act is the first year, which was really overshadowed by Afghanistan. Uh, Biden won't go there tonight. And the third act was really, in my view, began when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Joe Biden rose to meet that moment. He was uniquely qualified to do that. And he then went on a kind of a roll with legislative successes and, of course, defying the odds in the midterms. I think tonight what he'll do, if he's smart, and and I think he is, I, I think he's going to want to brag clearly about the stuff that he's accomplished, but he has to do it while also acknowledging that a lot of you out there may not feel the effects of the stuff we've done. So bear with us. It's coming. 
you know, all this great stuff that we've passed needs to be implemented. I think he needs to challenge the uh, the new majority and the GOP majority in the House by taking the high road and basically saying, listen, I'm not done doing bipartisan stuff. You want to make people's lives better? Join me. You got, you know, if you don't want to, okay. I, I think that, and I think also he needs to underline and reemphasize the stakes of defeating Putin in Ukraine. I think that that, of course, is what Biden's going to be remembered for in the history books more than anything else. I think that as much as conquering Ukraine is existential for Vladimir Putin, I think that beating Putin is existential for the U.S. and the West. And it's why it's the fight of Joe Biden's life. I agree with you on all those things. Let's take a couple of those uh, acts that you talk about. One that uh, struck me as somebody who just finished a book about the people in the Trump administration who tried to work around Trump and and minimize the damage done was the story you tell about the transition. Because you you talk about Trump's deputy chief of staff, um, Chris Chris Liddell. Liddell. And, you know, Chris Liddell is is a classic example of what I was trying to highlight in my last book, which is, you know, these unsung heroes who struggled like hell. In fact, you know, one of the stories that was told to me was on January 6th of him really being in emotional distress about what was going on and calling a former colleague from a prior administration and saying, should I go on? And uh, the the colleague said, yeah, you got to go on because somebody's got to manage this transition, which is exactly the story you tell. And uh, it's to me, you know, kind of the glue that holds the government together. And I was wondering if that's what you came away with too. Yeah, I did. I did. You know, it's, it's just almost unbelievable the extent to which the peaceful transfer of power depends on the goodwill of a handful of people. It thereby hangs by a thread. And, the story of Chris Liddell that I tell is this unbelievable, almost untold story. You know, oceans of ink have been written about Trump's final days, but I couldn't believe that nobody had really told his story. This is a guy who, an obscure, as you know, deputy White House chief of staff, a guy who was a Romney Republican who didn't particularly like Trump, thought the office would change him, was dead wrong, but was still there on January 6th and beforehand. And what he did was he he carried out under Trump's nose and without his knowledge, he kept the wheels of the transition turning. It's an unbelievable story. And as you say, uh, he almost quit several times. His friends talked him off the ledge. Josh Bolton was one of them, uh, George W. Bush's former chief of staff. And I have this whole exchange, the, the, the text exchange they did the night of January 6th, where, where Bolton is begging him to stay. He wrote, a, he wrote his letter of resignation. The next morning, he decided to rip it up and stay because somebody had to make sure that the transfer of power took place at noon on January 20th. It's an unbelievable story. Yeah, it's a great story. Now, when they hit the ground um, as an administration, they hit the ground running. This is due to a lot of factors, the transition uh, management of Chris Liddell being part of it, but a huge amount of respect goes to somebody who has a center, central role in this book and 
subject of prior book, and that is Ron Klain, who I think has been an extraordinary chief of staff. And when you look at the administration coming in, putting in place a thousand people, putting in place a bunch of executive orders, managing through that rough transition to something like almost immediate efficacy with the American Rescue Plan, it's not just a solid transition. It's it it seemed to me, you know, almost an administrative miracle. You know, given the wind, the head, the headwinds. Yeah. Do, do you yeah. agree with that? Absolutely. And not only Klein, but uh, Ted Kaufman, who uh, of course was the is Biden's alter ego and maybe closest friend in the world, who was the transition chairman, and Jeff Zients, who uh, of course is is going to replace Klein tomorrow as White House chief of staff. All of them managed somehow to get this to hit the ground running, as you say despite unbelievable obstacles thrown in their way by a president who refused to concede and, a, and, a, and an outgoing White House chief who, who was no help whatsoever, Mark Meadows, who threw up roadblocks at every turn. You know, they had to try to stand up the, the COVID response team without any data from the, from the Trump team and on and on and on. So, yeah, in my view, it was a miraculous transition. As you note, there are a number of people who are close to Biden who are still going to be in the mix, but Ron's not. And I have this suspicion that he's going to be missed more than people expect, not that the administration's going to come off the rails, because, of course, the first two years are the hardest two years. You've got to put an administration together. And, and in this particular case, you had to advance a legislative agenda, which is not really going to be the core goal for the next two years. I'm just wondering what you think the Klain legacy is going to be here and how big a hole is it going to leave? The Klain legacy is huge, and they're very big shoes to fill. There's a reason why great White House chiefs are hard to come by. And I'm talking now about the James A. Baker III's, the Leon Panettas under Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton, respectively. And Ron Klain, you've got to put in that company. Uh, at least I would. You know, I spent a lot of time studying White House chiefs of staff for my book, The Gatekeepers. I've, I've met almost all of them and have studied them. And I think Klain had, he had White House experience. He'd worked for nine previous White House chiefs. He had knowledge of Capitol Hill. He had deep political savvy. He had managerial acumen. And he had a great relationship with the boss three decades and more, as we know. What that enables a White House chief to do is tell the boss what he doesn't want to hear. And that's critical. That's the most important thing any White House chief can do. And I can give you examples of times when Klain did it to Biden's immense benefit. So Jeff Zeitz does not have, I mean, he's a managerial genius. Uh, that's, that's the good news. And he's, and he's got a world-class temperament which is an underrated quality that all the great chiefs have, including Klein. He's liked. Uh, that'll, that'll take him a long way. But he doesn't have Klein's political savvy, and he doesn't have that 36-year bond with the boss, although they do have a good working relationship. One of the things that strikes me about Jeff and about Ron and about Biden, and about a bunch of the people I know in this administration, is that they're good guys or good women. You know, these they're they're decent people in 
having written, I write a lot about the NSC, and but having written about it, the academic study, policy, and process, politics, but almost always it's chemistry. It's there's a particular people-to-people chemistry, and I thought your book captured very well the fact that this White House, following one perhaps the most dysfunctional White House we've ever seen, had a had a healthy human chemistry. It's not perfect, yeah. but unusual. No, yeah, it's absolutely true. There's this myth that goes back to the days of Richard Nixon, when Nixon famously said that his he wanted a chief of staff who was a plute perfect son of a bitch, and he found him in the in the person of H.R. Bob Haldeman. Well, we all know how that ended with Haldeman. The temperament I talked about and that collegial style that Klain has and a lot of other people around Biden have is really underrated. The way you create a White House that is leak-proof and almost drama-free is not by running around and, and uh, polygraphing people or threatening them if they, if they leak. The way you create that kind of White House is by investing people and making making them feel that they're part of the process that they that they that they want to pull for the boss and and you know I think that Klein created that kind of White House. There's a reason why Biden in Biden's letter he said not only was Klein terrific but he had a big heart. That counts. He does. I, I have to say he he does. He's a he's a man. He's a he's a, a good guy. But you know maintaining that kind of a, an, an atmosphere when you're getting a lot done is that much harder. I mean, Obama had a reputation, no no drama Obama. But of course, he started with a pretty contentious chief of staff. And a lot of the time when there was a conflict over something, the response in order to pour oil on the waters was not to do something. And so they didn't have a very productive first few years. Biden has managed to keep the team together while dealing with the likes of Joe Manchin, dealing with, on every single major achievement, very tough negotiations. That seems to add a substantial degree of difficulty. Yeah, no, and no question about it. And <clears throat> you remember, I, I referred to what I call the, the second act of this uh, three-act political thriller that I think this White House is, with obviously no ending yet. But the second act included not only Afghanistan, but following that and and this long decline in Biden's approval rating, there was that terrible months-long process of trying to pass Build Back Better and bipartisan infrastructure and all that ugly sausage-making. And that was a tough period to, to come through. I tell the story about how I went to see Ron Klain at what I think was the low point of the Biden presidency on a Saturday at the West Wing. Biden was in Europe, empty-handed, on his way to Glasgow to the climate conference without Build Back Better and all of its climate provisions. You know, the fate of the presidency, or at least his legislative agenda, was really in doubt. And I talked to Klain that afternoon, and he said he was thinking about quitting. Uh, He was burned out. He was wiped out. He decided to stay. And you can be sure that Biden is grateful that he did. Long-winded answer your question, but one of the things that Ron did with Joe Manchin 
was that he ultimately realized that Manchin could not be seen to be giving Biden any kind of win whatsoever. It was that was death in West Virginia. So Klein essentially orchestrated this so that it would look like Joe Manchin's bill. Basically, he picked up the phone and he called Manchin and he called Schumer and he said, you guys work this out. But he knew it had to look like Manchin's bill and not Biden's. And he was very much in the loop, signing off on every I and every T. But he had the political savvy to realize that was the way you get the Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah. Now, the fight of his life, as you describe it, which pertains to Ukraine, which is epical. It's, you know, it's it's not just the fight of his life, but it's really going to determine, you know, the the how the story of the post-Cold War era gets written and perhaps what comes after it, the future of NATO, the future of Europe, the future mm-hmm. of Russia. All of a sudden you've got, and well, in China to some degree, people keep tying those two things together. But Biden, you know, everybody talks about George H.W. Bush having more foreign policy experience than any president. Biden has three times as much foreign policy experience as George H.W. Bush did coming into office. He was prepared for this. And, you know, just as management is the most underrated skill set in Washington, something that I think comes through both in this book and in your great book on Chiefs of Staff, is experience is often underrated. Biden's decades of experience in dealing with Russia, plus the decades of experience of working with his Secretary of State, plus the decades of experience of our sort of what I what I sometimes refer to as, you know, our spare Secretary of State, Bill Burns, who, you know, was an ambassador in Moscow and knew this very well, et cetera, et cetera. Add Lloyd Austin, add Jake, Jake Sullivan, really paid off in a big way. I just think it's a remarkable story. Yeah, no, it is. It is remarkable. And this was a team that really, you know, you have to think of Jack Kennedy and the best and the brightest. You know, I mean, obviously that didn't end well in Vietnam, but this was, you talk to people like Jim Stavridis and and others who have been around the block, they will tell you that there's never been a more prepared, better equipped foreign policy and national security team in U.S. history. And and again, everybody always cites George H.W. Bush, but this is one of the great teams. And I found, I mean, to me, some of the most interesting Parts of the book were are some of the personalities here. Bill Burns, of course, who, as you mentioned, um, is not just a CIA director in the traditional sense, not just the honest broker of intelligence, but an uber superstar diplomat that Biden can deploy and send to uh, on secret missions to brief Zelensky and and to lay down the law with Putin. So, and Jake Sullivan, once in a generation intellect, as everybody, you know, is sort of the cliche about him, but he's a remarkable guy. He, he, I I spoke to one of his close friends as an undergrad, who was an undergraduate at Yale with him. And she said, this was a guy who had this amazing sense of duty and old fashioned sense of love of country 
he had a sense of responsibility before he had any responsibility, is the way she described him. And he beat himself up over the Afghanistan withdrawal. And God knows that was a whole of government failure. Everybody did almost everything wrong. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm complicating my theory here. But it's an amazing team. And, and when it came to Ukraine, they did almost everything right. Well, you're speaking to one of the few people that thinks that they did a lot right in Afghanistan. So, uh, and, uh, you know, I've taken endless amounts of shit about this, but the, but the reality is, you know, Biden was right in 2009 when he said we should have gotten out of Afghanistan then. We were wrong, as Ron points out to you in the book, for sticking around as long as we did. Staying longer would have been compounding the problem. Getting out those last few weeks was fucked up. But, yeah, I'm but, really, I'm really, I should clarify that I'm really talking about the execution of the evacuation, not the Biden decision to withdraw, which I think you can argue both sides of that. And Biden certainly has a very good argument. Well, and as you point out in the book, it's actually not the execution of the exit. It's the execution of the first part of the exit, because the second part of the exit, the airlift, was amazing. Which, by the way, I think all of that stuff helped prepare them for Ukraine, because you started a contact group then. They were working with other countries to deal with the sort of aftermath in Afghanistan. Wendy Sherman was having these meetings on a regular basis and so forth. And the kind of things logistically that the military had to focus on at the end there were things that came in extremely handy when you had to supply and, and supply rapidly and in complicated ways Ukraine, right? So it was, it was good prep. I would argue, I, I totally agree with you in your assessment of these, these, these people, many of whom I've known for the past 30 years, each one of whom brings a certain unique quality to this. And I would argue that there's a second component to all of this, which was not the focal point of your book, but I'd be interested in, in, in this. And that is, ironically, Joe Biden, who's actually not a baby boomer, he's pre-baby boomer, has overseen, after 20-odd years of trying, the turning of the page on U.S. foreign policy. We've actually moved, you know, we, we talked about a pivot, he pivoted. We talked about putting China at the top of the list. He's put China at the top of the list. We've talked about dealing with next generation threats. He's dealing with next generation threats. People have talked about how does America remain competitive in this environment. He's done that as well. And I think that's also to the credit of this group of people who learned lessons, including, you know, by the way, the lessons of the Obama administration and where it didn't quite get to, not to mention the lessons of you know, the great screw up of George W. Bush or, you know, the catastrophe of Trump. And so there's a forward looking dimension to a lot of this stuff that I'm, I'm, I, it's almost impossible for people to appreciate right now, but the signs are pointing in the right direction. Yeah. And I think it's, it's extraordinary the extent to which Biden when he was talking about the contest between democracy and autocracy at the outset of this administration, everybody thought, including Leon Panetta, and you know, I spent a lot of time walking, talking to Panetta about this White House. Everybody thought these are platitudes. And then 
then came February 24, 2022, and the invasion that the administration saw coming, warned everybody about, nobody believed them. And suddenly, there it was, unfolding before our eyes, exactly what Biden had been talking about. And that's the great fight of his life and the fight of, as you pointed out, the fight of our lives. It's it's the fight of the 21st century uh, between, you know, either Putin prevails in Ukraine somehow and and Xi gets the green light to move on Taiwan and, and autocracies advance or or not. We hold them back. Uh, that may be slightly simplistic, but those are the stakes. And I think Biden laid them out. And, and Panetta, who, as you know, is very critical of Biden uh, in my book, and certainly of the Afghan evacuation, which he called Joe Biden's Bay of Pigs. And I love Klan's response to that in the book. Gives Biden full credit for Ukraine. I loved Klain's response, too, because I think I think Leon wasn't being fair in the in that particular case. We only had a couple minutes here, and I'd I'd like to end with a, a, another sort of forward looking question, and that is, we're halfway through. You've done the deep dive, and you've gotten a lot of credit in the reviews of the book for having done so much so quickly, so well. But what do you think of the second half? You know, where you know halftime's over. We're going into the second half of this administration. There's a different team. You note. Zeitz has different sets of skills, and and Biden's eighty, and uh, that's different. He's going to be different every year. His his capacity is changing. What are your expectations? Can they maintain the level of accomplishment and professionalism in the last two years that you chronicle so well in the first two? Well. It's, it may be it may sound melodramatic to say that having confronted the most daunting array of challenges since FDR's time in the first two years, that now comes the hard part. But in a way, now comes the hard part because you've got an octogenarian entering a bruising re-election battle, and you've got on top of that all of the challenges that we that we know he faces, including, by the way, a continuing threat to democracy in the form of MAGA and Trumpism. It's the one thing that shocked Joe Biden more than anything else in his presidency was the lasting power of it. It's still very much with us. He's got to keep NATO unified against uh, against Putin in defense of Ukraine. He's got China. It's a tremendous challenge. And I think but look, he 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 goes into this fourth act, um, as I put it, with a lot of momentum. And um, when I asked Ron Klain, how how how's he going to do without you? Klain said it could get worse. It could get better. Now, maybe that's what he has to say. But Zeitz is a very talented guy. And this is a really remarkable team that Biden's got around him. On the age question, let me just finish with that. Andy Card, George W.'s first chief, told me there ought to be a constitutional amendment forbidding anybody from running for president at 75 or over, to which my good friend Jack Watson, who was Jimmy Carter's final perp chief of staff, says, aging is a 
very individual thing. How many Supreme Court justices were firing on every cylinder well into their 80s? Picasso at his most productive period before he died at 91. It's a very individual thing. And, and there's no sign that Biden is cognitively impaired whatsoever. Well, I, the other thing is the executive branch of the United States government is a corporation. It's not an individual. And if you've got a good team, and that's what you've been extremely good at describing, you can, you know, different members of the team compensate for the strengths and weaknesses of other members of the team, including the president. If the president is smart enough to delegate, he has been, right? I mean, I, I think you got to give him credit for that. He's, you know, he knows his limitations. He knows the strengths of those around them. You know, he's put, he's, you know, guys like Lloyd Austin very quietly in the background you know, go to Rammstein and negotiate a deal on tanks. And, you know, he lets them do it. And all these pieces that Janet Yellen, who doesn't get a lot of publicity, goes out in the first year and gets a, a minimum corporate tax thing through, which is really kind of revolutionary. Nobody really talked about it. Um, but it's this, you know, Biden's got a good temperament to be a president. Yeah, yeah. Although it, it, I, I would say he's 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 much um, he's, he's got a much hotter temperament than Klein or Zients. I don't think he suffers fools. I, 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 and I think more than Obiden, you know, one of the things I talk about is the chip he carries on his shoulder to this day about people who underestimated him decades ago. And I also write about how it, the language gets pretty salty in the Oval Office over the over the border and other things. But that's a perfect example of what Rahm Emanuel always called, uh, always said about the Oval. He said, you know, if it's if it's easy, if a decision is easy, somebody else makes it. Everything that gets into the Oval is between bad and worse. Well, Rahm was one of those calming presences, you know. The- <laughs> yes. Um, um, anyway, this is a great book. Your, I congratulations on 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 each of your books, but this is an uh, a, a great one and is extremely timely. It's called "The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House." Chris Whipple is the author. Can't wait for whatever the next book is because I learn a lot from these and enjoy them a lot. And uh, I'm sure our readers, w- our listeners, will as well. So. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thank you for writing the book. And thank you, everybody, for listening.